Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I've got Nick Lambert on the show. Nick is the CEO of Doc, a company that provides decentralized identity solutions. He started out at IBM and moved into the decentralized space in 2011 when he joined the Scottish startup MadeSafe. He was their chief operating officer for seven years, but now he's the CEO of Doc Labs AG, which is the company behind the Doc Network, uh, which has created Doc Certs, a platform that enables organizations to create and manage decentralized identities and verifiable credentials. This has been a topic that's always been very interesting to me because in a decentralized network, it can be very difficult to have the authority and the authentication to make sure that people are who they say they are or a document is uh, verifiable, that it is uh, legitimate. So Doc has a lot of um, kind of tailwinds coming uh, behind it right now. Uh, in California, where I live, um, legislation was passed last year for birth, marriage, and death certificates to be on a blockchain. So those would all need to be verified. There's a similar program under discussion in Utah. Uh, the European Union uh, is has passed a law that digital wallets uh, must be available to all citizens by 2024. Uh, British Columbia up in Canada is also uh, exploring a similar system. So to get all these verified identities and uh, documents onto a blockchain. Doc is working um, very hard and is part of the Substrate Network, which is a modular blockchain. Um, some of the bigger kind of use cases here um, are healthcare, supply chain, uh, the metaverse, and in finance. So I had a really great conversation with Nick, and I hope you enjoy it. And if you can, please um, rate our show five stars and give us a comment so that other people can uh, find and enjoy the show as well. Thanks again, always for your support. Hey, Nick, how you doing? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm great, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. We were just talking about the weather in different parts of the world, and uh, you're in Scotland, which you've lived in your whole life, I understand? That's correct. Yeah, and I, I, I think British people obsess about the weather. Uh, because we get like so much of it, and we know that whoever we speak to generally has better weather than us, and we like those good news stories. So, so yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I probably obsess about it as much as anyone. But yeah, in Scotland all, all my life, and uh, and happy to be here. What what part of the Scotland are you in? So I'm in a small town called Presswick, which is in the southwest coast. Um, so it's about an hour south of Glasgow, which is kind of Scotland's biggest city, and yeah. really overlooking on on the beach, looking out towards Ireland. Oh wow. That must that's I can picture that in my mind. It must be absolutely spectacular. It's yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um I think there's a pretty good community of London expats in Los Angeles where I live because I think they come here and they see the sun and they <laughs> never want to go back. <laughs> yeah, they wonder what that yellow ball in the sky is and they just, they just stay there so they can worship it. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Um, really great. It's also London. I think in LA are similar. They're they're big, but they're spread out as well. So That's right. I think there's yeah, there's kind of a a physical vibe that that both cities share. Um, well, yeah, thank thank you so much for being here, Nick. Because I'm I'm really interested in what you guys are doing at Doc because Doc Labs, which is um, you guys are mostly working in document like how to fraud-proof documents, but this also touches on digital identity, uh, yep. which I find fascinating because it's it's really rather difficult to um, verify a digital identity right. in a decentralized fashion, right? 
That's why we have like driver's licenses or a passport. There's a centralized authority yes. that vouches for you. So could, maybe we could just start there on a high level with what are the challenges with getting a decentralized identity to a point where people accept it and and, and view it as um, you know valid. Yeah. So I think, I mean, so Doc is really, I don't know, we'll touch on to that. So it's really not so much about document, it's more about data, uh, preventing data fraud and really being able to uh, verify a piece of data and that can be anything. And to your question, Matt, uh, the challenges behind getting somebody to accept it, they're actually, they're not so much technical like you would believe. So we, we kind of know how to do the technical stuff. Um, cryptocurrencies um, have shown us how to do that. So how do you manage a thing in a decentralized manner in a wallet or in some kind of a web application. And we, we know how to do all that stuff, albeit that we're improving all the time. The difficult stuff is actually um, the enabling organizations to understand why they should want to start using this technology, why things like centralization is not always a particularly good thing. Um, and also around compliance as well. So quite often you'll find that with lots of technology, we're seeing it a lot with AI right now. The technologists and the developers can make stuff increasingly quickly, but the, the legal aspects tend to, to slow things up. Um, and so that's another factor, compliance and the legalities and, and forming laws around um, like technology. So one example of that is within Europe right now, um, the EU, the European Union is actually putting into place a law that requires all of the 27 EU member states to actually legally need to provide um, a, a decentralized digital wallet for their citizens for, for um, the purposes of storing identity documents. And so that, that stuff is moving quite quickly in parts of the world and then in other parts, not so much. Um, so really a big part of, of um, overcoming some of these adoption barriers, I guess, is what we're talking about. It's mostly regards legal stuff and also um, education as well and helping yeah. people to understand that the benefits of, of what we can offer. I had a note to talk to you about that EU program. That's that's going to be, um, they have to do that by 2024. Yeah. Why, what's... Why are they so far ahead there? What um, has has the industry just been more successful at getting them to understand the advantages, or is it like yeah. there's already the EU where if you're a member, you just go you know seamlessly across borders? But are they so are they trying to streamline that, or where where is that coming from? Yeah, I, th I wonder. I think a lot of it's down to politics. Like we we muse about this a little bit as well, and um, because we speak to people like uh, people from companies all over the place, and I think you have GDPR. Um, in Europe, so so there was a kind of early understanding of the the desire to protect citizens from corporations, uh, and this is probably following on from that is giving the individuals the ability to control their own identities, removing that away from from corporations uh, and potentially governments as well. And I think of that a lot of that might stem from the different uh, politics in play within e each of the areas. So what you'd find in Europe is. It's, there's a lot more socialism uh, in place, so a lot more power to the people type um, ideas. Whereas uh, in other parts of the world and, and parts of the US, I, I'm certainly not saying all of it, I don't want anyone to start <laughs> screaming at me that I've mislabeled America or something, but but you tend to find a much more um, maybe kind of conservative stance um, with regards to, to their politics and less desire um, at scale um, in the mainstream to start giving the individuals um, the power 
that they're getting in Europe. And that's not to say yeah. that won't happen. It's just maybe a little bit behind. So I think to answer your question, Matt, it's probably a lot to do with the history and politics of, of these areas has, has driven that behavior. I wonder too, because once you're in the EU, you've got free reign, right? You can go anywhere. So protecting that outer border is, I know it's been important for, for that part yeah. of the world. Um, I was once on a on a bus trip from Ukraine into uh, Prague and there were yeah. like cigarette smugglers on there and they got busted, <laughs> you know, because they, you know, yeah. you go across that border and like the, the pack of cigarettes that you buy for 25 cents in yeah. uh, Kiev is now, you know, you can sell for several dollars, like a, a yeah. lot more, you know. So I understand that from a, a first kind of point of view, but yeah. is it also, are they, so this, um, the digital wallet and the digital identity is a lot harder to fake, right? It's not like a passport where it's a piece of, you know, it's a, it's a piece of it's yes, a physical item. That, that's correct. And I think it all comes down to how well it's implemented. Um, so, so one of the things that digital identity implemented well is you can, once you get stuff like whether it's in a blockchain or, or otherwise, if, if you're using um, like the ability to digitally sign something, um, and I'll not get into the weeds of, of cryptography here necessarily, but I think once you can do that, um, that that makes the the digital document much more powerful. You can't really forge a cryptographic signature. Um, right. So this so this is a, a very a very standard form of anybody in crypto. It's like you've got a private key and a public key. Exactly. And so your public yeah, key infrastructure just yeah. centralized PKI. Exactly the same. So it so uses all the same cryptography there, um, and that's not the hard part. The harder part is. With blockchains, for the most part, they're certainly the public ones, Matt, as you will be aware, they're mostly designed to not stop people doing anything they want, right? Unless, so you can go on and you can create a Bitcoin addresses and Ethereum addresses and smart contracts and no one can stop you. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of these identity systems, that's also the case. So you could go on and create an identity for yourself and pretend you're the government. Um, and and then you have this thing that the blockchain can can tell who signed it and things. And but the reality is the harder part is making sure that the on chain identity matches a real world identity. So you need to have this notion of who's creating these uh, these documents, these uh, issuing out these credentials. Let's it could be a a government issued identity. It's making sure who is issuing that on behalf of the government and do they have the right to do that. So that that's the thing that probably that's more of a a process uh, thing to be put in place. But once that's in place, it's it's very very strong. But you do need that link between real world reputation, real world identity, and what's also on chain, um, because because that's the kind of foundation of, of all of this. Does that does that break it down and, and take it a little away from being completely decentralized? Then, in your opinion, because there does have to be a centralized um, entity in, in, the, in the process. Yeah, it could do, but you could have like a. So this would be something that's called maybe a trust registry. So you could have something that that some kind of database that lives somewhere that basically is the law with regards to who is who on the chain. But what you could do is you could decentralize that. So like you have, you know, a ledger, blockchains are basically ledgers. Um, and that could be that that trust registry could be run in a decentralized way. So you could have multiple parties that are responsible for issuing the credentials and, and where that trust registry is hosted could be decentralized as well. So it is a centralizing aspect. That's definitely correct to say, but it, you could do it in a decentralized way as well. Okay. Yeah, I was I was interested to see also that um, California, where I live, um, they passed legislation last year that soon 
all birth, marriage, and death certificates are going to be issued digitally and verified on blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Utah, Utah has a similar, I mean, I think Utah's got like a kind of a, a program where they're working on something similar. Um, are, are they, are you going after that kind of project? Is that what Doc is doing? Or do you know, is like California thinking they're going to use Ethereum or wh what's the thinking there? Yeah, I'm not sure. We, we tend to not focus too much on, on uh, government type um, projects are quite slow moving, um, as you would expect, and um, a little bit yeah. unpredictable. So while we have looked at a few, we don't really focus on them too heavily because we're, we're obviously we're wanting to see stuff out in the wild, get it adopted, improve the product based on, on feedback. So so we, we don't focus too much on, on government stuff, but I know that, um, yeah, there will obviously be, be people looking in those departments. I know that the Department of Homeland Security is very switched on to to decentralized identity, looking at how it can be used for things like uh, import, export, social security right across the US um, and uh, quite a few other use cases. So I think there's definitely- yeah, Isn't like social security fraud? I mean, I know you don't yeah. live in the US, so I think that's huge, right? I mean, exactly. that's a huge- Yeah, uh, and, and so they've done a great job of engaging with um, all the- the really clued up, um, <clears throat> excuse me, companies that are working in the space, and they've run a number of kind of public tenders, um, and, and there's a, a there's several projects up and running. So I think they're 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 going uh, you know really well with that. Um, I think the US is typically a little bit fragmented because obviously having all the different states and each of them having a lot of of uh, kind of uh, power, so it does tend to get a little fragmented. I think another thing that California is doing particularly well is is moving towards this. Uh, kind of mobile driver's license um, is something that um, like people at Anva and stuff are, are starting to look at and seeing how they, they can apply technology to, to that use case as well. So, but yeah, you, as you would expect, um, you know, being in the heart of the technology world, California is probably, uh, you know, pretty well ahead on this stuff. Okay, so let's go back a little bit. Like Nick Lambert, as, a, as an eight-year-old boy, he, he dreamed of, of being uh, in, in talking about digital wallets on podcasts <laughs> and uh, how to decentralize identity. Or yeah, he probably dreamed about um, wanting to be a motorcycle cop or something <laughs> daft like that or probably being a professional soccer player, um, okay. neither of which I got particularly close to. So, uh, yeah, I kind of... Uh, um, yeah, I kind of ended up in, in, in technology, which is something that I always enjoyed. And uh, did you grow up where you like near where you live now in Scotland? Not far away, like maybe sixty miles. Um, uh -huh. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of went to university, kind of in Glasgow, and um, my first job was at IBM. So IBM was a very big presence um, in in the west coast of Scotland. So I worked for them for for quite a few years, and that probably gave me a really good grounding for working in kind of really dynamic uh, environments in and around technology and, and really just kind of seemed to, to flow from there. Okay. What uh, what soccer team did you, or do you support or did you support? Well, I kind of don't really follow soccer too much now. Like I, I got a pretty bad injury when I was younger and it just kind of sickened me, but I uh, did support an, a team called Aberdeen, uh, which is on the other side mm -hmm. of Scotland. They, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup back in, I think it was 1986. And uh, yeah. I've heard as of young, them. As a young kid then, so that, that was really what, what got me going. Um, so, uh, But I, I kind of don't follow. I do still follow Scotland, but I, I don't really follow a team as much. Okay, fair enough. Um, totally random question, but the, the one band I know out of Glasgow uh, is called Glass Vegas. Do you know that band? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were... 
They were, they've not been around for a while. They were kind of a fusion. Did they break not up? Like, yeah, um, oh. that's right. Uh, yeah, Scotland's had a lot of, of good bands. Like the big ones now would be like the Snuts. Um, they're really, really good. Um, really kind of like fresh sounding. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, Glasgow's got a really vibrant music scene. Um, yeah. Churches and things like that is a bit kind of lighter, but um, yeah, Glasgow's got a few kind of uh, great bands that have come out of it. Um, but, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So what um, what was it about technology? What, what was it about IBM that sort of opened your eyes, or, or was it just like uh, it was the opportunity because they were there, or was there something like you think deeper that, that like appealed to you as a, as a person and like your own creativity? I think it's exciting. I think it's when you're part of a really big organization and you start to think you kind of see all the possibilities are, are endless. Like it's very easy. Um, in, in certain parts of the world, that, that that's where you get stuck. And I was always determined that, like, I wouldn't have a dead end job where I felt like I couldn't go anywhere with it. Like that, that was what I was going to do. Um, and so, like IBM, always felt like there were loads of opportunities, uh, and there were. So, like, people would go away and, you know, work in the US or work in different parts of the world, um, working in Asia and things like that on, on projects, and it just offered those opportunities that you wouldn't get with uh, with any kind of small local firm. So it just was exciting. Uh, and the money involved as well, like for some reason, like even like, you know, I was a buyer, so like buying lots of like microchips and memory and stuff, like although it was just numbers on the screen, the amount of money you were spending was was exciting as well. But you mm, kind of, yeah. um, so, so that kind of whole, that whole experience is quite intoxicating. And then after, doing that it's just kind of difficult to go back to like a smaller business or one that's uh where, where you know this different changing environment that the technology can provide it'd be difficult going back to an environment where that didn't exist yeah talking about a digital wallet i'd like to have 25 million dollars in an ibm digital wallet that'd be <laughs> yeah. that'd be nice well, as long as they don't hold your keys though right yeah uh, so, yeah yeah absolutely but, um so what era in computing are we at when you're at IBM? Is the is the internet kind of out and, and, it and is, around? But yeah, we're just about to hit a boom. So I, I pretty much graduated in, uh, I'll show my age now, back in uh, 99. And okay. uh, so then went into um, to IBM after that. So like right around the, the dot-com boom. And I don't know yeah. if many of your listeners remember, like the big project I was working on when I got on there that was everyone's panicking about was Y2K. And the notion that the timers on your computers, like no one really knew what was going to happen and everyone thought the world might fall apart because all the all the clocks in our computers were all going to go to zero or something. So yeah. that was that was a weird thing if you think about it now. But I mean, at the time I spent inordinate amounts of time like looking at that and, and, work, and kind of working on projects. So uh, yeah. it almost feels like that didn't happen. I, yeah, I lived through that. I remember my wife and I and my friends were all like in the cent like in the central coast of California in this kind of remote place, just in case everything went down. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah it's so weird, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, weird. I don't, I don't think anyone was really affected in the end. No, I don't think it did anything at all. Um, okay, and so so yeah, so you're about to the the internet is, is like getting established and about to take off um, with the dot com stuff. Um, so, did you? And then, where did you go from IBM? Like, what was what were the lessons you took from that? And like, where where did you think like your career was headed after that? 
Yeah, weirdly, I decided at that point I didn't really ever want to work for a really big company again. Like, as and as much as I've just said how that kind of big environment was was opportunity, there was a lot of opportunities and it was exciting. Um, big companies have all the politics um, associated with it, and it kind of felt to me, at least, like um, you spent as much time trying to, uh, you know, cover your backside uh, with uh, with things as you did, just in case, like one of your colleagues tried to kind of like shoot you down. And, and that sounds like a kind of paranoid angle to have, but like there were, it did feel like there was quite a few people trying to kind of climb the greasy pole, as it were, and uh, and and certainly some people would. Um, you certainly saw them uh, go after colleagues. So, so that part for me was um, the kind of downside of a big company, the politics involved. Um, and so I kind of decided at that point, rather than be um, a very small cog in a big machine, I liked the technology environment and really wanted to be a, a kind of bigger cog in a smaller machine. And, and so at th- that point, it was great to be able to move into to smaller companies. Yeah, it's it's amazing when you're in a big company. I was at Bloomberg uh, for a long time, and you you see certain people, and they they fail upwards. I guess <laughs> yes, is the way I, I think of it. And you just look at them, and you're like, "How the I fuck know. do you keep doing that?" <laughs> the worst thing we always say is the worst thing you can be at your job in a big company is quiet and competent because mm-hmm. you'll just stay there forever. Like you either are like you say, like terrible, and and every manager pushes them on to their the next person, yeah. and you kind of end up moving around that way, but. Um, yeah, being competent is not always the best thing. No, because you're going to get taken advantage of, most likely. Yeah. You know, uh, so yeah, I, I hear that. So what 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 did you do? Uh, what, what was the small company you you went to? I actually, yeah, I actually went and worked my uh, my in laws' company. So they had a a manufacturing business, which which wasn't it wasn't te- uh, technology led on the on the computer chip and the hardware side, but like technology in terms of the materials that they were building with. So so they were both ex-Olympic kayakers, believe it or not, um, oh, from wow. Scotland. And they, they met at, um, uh, they went to, I think, two Olympic Games, uh, my father-in-law and, and one for my mother-in-law. So, and they basically had this business built up and they were um, wanting to kind of step back a little bit. And my wife was already working there or she was my girlfriend at the time. And I kind of went, you know, just to work there for, you know, just, uh, you know, to tide them over for a year or two. And I ended up staying there for kind of three or four years. And then that was my first, uh, like, uh, uh, mergers and acquisition experience. Like that business was sold to SC Johnson, a, a US company that that's um, probably most, most famous for making Pledge, uh, the furniture polish. But uh, they had a big, massive outdoor arm. So, so that was a great experience because it was a total change in, um, you know, what we did as a company. But also getting up close to what due diligence really looks like with a large company and, and going through that negotiation phase was 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 excellent experience. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and then you kind of came back to technology with MadeSafe when you went yeah. there. Yeah, Can you tell me a little bit about that. Of course. Um, so MadeSafe is is very quickly is basically like for those that remember and still use like BitTorrent before it was kind of taken over by Tron, but it was BitTorrent, um, but for private data. So BitTorrent was a way for public data to be held for a period of time and um, by individuals, um, but running computers at home. Uh, and so basically, it would be this um, kind of distributed storage network for public data. Um, didn't have any incentivization mechanisms and stuff built in, but it just worked. Um, there were some centralizing features with it, but MadeSafe was basically that, but on steroids. So our idea was, or the founder's idea, I, I can't claim this one actually at, at all, but 
Yeah, David Irvin, the, the CEO's idea was that you um, remove, it's very similar to the, the Web3 stories that we hear today, removing the um, the centralizing and commercial part of web services. So today we would all store our, our data, whether it's music or files or whatever, in centralized places. But how about if that if we all um, put a bit of software in our machines at home and all contributed to this global network? So this software would connect together all our computers at home to create this global data storage network um, that where data was always encrypted um, and the data would move around this network um, and it would be incentivized for 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 people to run those devices. And so that's basically what MadeSafe was. It was the earliest decentralized storage network, probably after something like BitTorrent. Um, so, so that was an amazing grounding for what I'm doing now. And uh, is that, yeah. that strikes me as similar to like IPFS? Is that yeah, similar? Exactly. Yeah, so it's like yeah. IPFS, but IPFS was, it's never, I think they're trying to put some security stuff in there now, but it was never, it was again for public data. So it was never encrypted. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really ever intended for, or wasn't originally designed by, I think it was Juan Bennett, or if I don't know if I said his name correctly, but he would design that for, for public data to be available, almost like a... Um, like uh, a public record. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. And so basically was trying to yeah. do that stuff, but also for your private data as well. So you could okay. hold your private data out on this this network. Um, so, so that was the idea. So it was... Very complex uh, and uh, but very very interesting and like I say a great grounding for for getting into the Web three space. And yeah, you so you were there um, right around the time Bitcoin became popular. Did, when when did that come across your radar, or crypto in general? For me, it was uh, I mean some of the guys I worked from Macy from late twenty eleven, and even at that point, some of the engineers in there were mining Bitcoin at that time. But I never really took much notice. Uh, there was probably a lot of things that they were interested in that I didn't think was that interesting. Um, and where it really struck home for me was in late 2013, like I said, we had this, this network, but we're trying to figure out what is going to incentivize people to turn their computers on at home, burn power, burn, um, you know, use their internet connections and all that stuff. There must be some incentive for them doing that. Like, and, and, and how would we facilitate that, that happening? And so looking around, you can see actually, wait a minute, Bitcoin does that. So you have this decentralized network. Miners in this case run um, uh, large large scale computers effectively and servers to uh, provide hashing power to this network and they are paid out in this token, uh, Bitcoin. So that's an interesting thing. So at that point, you started to look at, at, um, at copying that, that concept to bring that into MadeSafe. And so... Um, that's what we did. So we started to, to build in this notion of a, of a basically a cryptocurrency or a cryptographic token built into the network that would be paid to users um, as as they store other people's uh, bits of data on their machine. Okay, cool. Was it blockchain based, or were you guys just sort of having this, it, the servers were centralized? Yeah, it was. It wasn't blockchain based, but it was probably more akin to like a like a. This will maybe do a disservice, but almost like a like a IOTA type DAG uh, network. So um, it'd be more like that rather than a chain. Um, so uh, what the tokens would have it is it would be like digital cash. So it would know who the previous owner of the token was, and it would know who it was sent to, but it would have no recollection beyond that. So um, yeah, so it was interesting. It was definitely quite a different take on on. Uh, on that, because I think the founders saw like the the scaling issues that can exist with blockchains. Yeah. So, was there something um, during that period 
uh, a project or, or any kind of development that that really caught your eye uh, in the Web three space and and you know crypto in general? Well, we actually did. Uh, I mean, it's, it, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but we actually did the. I think it was the world's second ever ICO back in 2014 in April, and and right along after us, there was this project called Ethereum that everyone was talking about. <laughs> and we kind of remember speaking to a kind of the first conference I went to. I remember was was in Texas in it was in Austin. It was actually the, where they have the the circuit of the Americas, I think, where they have the sometimes have the F one. And uh, I remember back in those days, like Vitalik Buterin was obviously kind of starting to become known, but like not no one was really a big star in those days. And you go into his conference and, and just happily wander in and see people like that speaking so yeah. ethereum was certainly one that that at the time you could really see that that was getting traction um so that was certainly one of the projects that, that stood out um and there's been probably quite a few since then but i've probably forgotten them so it doesn't maybe mean that they made it but um yeah. ethereum was obviously one that, that stood out for us and then you said that made safe was one of the first like the second ico yep yeah, wow. so yeah, so that was back. I think Mastercoin was the first, and then the guys that were behind mm-hmm. that project kind of um, helped mm-hmm. us work on that project as well. So, um, uh, yeah, and with mixed results, I'd say like we we made. I think it's, I think at that point, um, I can't remember what the the only fastest ever crowdfunding before that, but I think we made about six million dollars in five hours, which wow. In today's like ICO like world, that's absolutely nothing at all. But at that time, I think um, it was I think like the Pebble Watch or something like that was the only thing that had gone as fast as that, and uh, and it was just a kind of really interesting way to not only raise finance, which you were trying to do as a company, but also to have um, a group or a community of people that were bought into making you succeed. So it's a really yeah. effective mechanism for. Um, kind of growing a community as well. I think that's often forgotten about. Um, but yeah, and I say this all the time. Like, uh, it, you know, re, that basically reimagined one of the most important functions of finance, which is raising capital. Right? You you have to go to a bank, or you yep. have to go to a venture capital firm, or you have to yep. you know find the money somewhere. And here, you can go out to people who don't know you and yep. strangers, but are people who maybe want to support your project and raise yep. money directly from them. So I, yeah, it's, it's one it's of the powerful, yeah. But it's definitely not always, it's, you know, like history has shown is that, you know, it's, it's you do need to have some kind of um, way of, of protecting people as well. So because, and that could be an unpopular comment, but we've seen so many projects just disappear and, mm-hmm. and you do get people that have raised ungodly sums of money. Like I think you mentioned like IPFS and Filecoin, like that was an example of a project that raised quarter of a billion dollars. Yeah, and had not built much, and that's right. pretty ludicrous as well. Um, so I think, uh, I think it's definitely, and, and but some projects would only get funded that way. There are certain things that that VCs or, or, or venture capitalists are very focused on metrics and numbers, and they all have their formulas about what and their sweet spots about what they're looking for. And simply, if that was your only um, fundraising mechanism, a lot of great ideas wouldn't ever see the light of day. So, so I think yeah. it's it can be a very powerful thing, but it's it's also um, there's been a lot of frauds over the years as well. So, so I think it's uh, it's definitely a good thing, but it's it's you know you need to be careful as well if you're you're going to put money into these things. Do you know who the people are? Do you trust them, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, hundred um, percent. Well, speaking of fraud um, and and Doc Labs, like. 
Did you have a personal experience with document fraud or was that just like a ne- the next like leap, you know, in your career where you wanted to go kind of dive uh, a bit more, I guess, directly into Web3 and, and blockchain world? Yeah, for me, it was more it, the, the fraud angle was was obviously there, but I'd never in touch with them. Um, I haven't been like heavily defrauded yet, but I think for me, it was more about um, the aspects of enabling people to control things for themselves so like again what made save or what you know bitcoin and and cryptocurrencies had shown is that it's it's very powerful to be your own bank at times it's also worrying because you know if you lose your your access you've, you've lost everything but at the same time it's very empowering to know that you can transfer value to someone almost instantly for for almost no cost um, and it's empowering to have control over something as opposed to a company having control over you. And I think that's really what drew me to, to the concept of Doc was what's bigger than identity? Like what bigger thing can you control online? There's really nothing bigger than that. So if you can control your own identity, you can really control your own des- destiny at that point. So so that was really the big thing. And then once you have that d- identity layer in place, then what do you do? So you can start to then make claims about things um, and and these claims can be proven instantly. And these claims are things like basically verifiable credentials. So it's the right to practice medicine, the, you know, I've got a degree from Harvard, I've got a, um, a you know, some kind of identity document from, from somewhere. So th- those are so the let, perfect- Yeah, let's let's jump into that a little bit. How, how, does, how does what Doc do um, differ from somebody just claiming that you know today on a resume like where, what's where's the where's the difference in in that um it, it makes it basically or it, it makes it almost impossible to to be yeah. to say something that's not true like how, can you just walk me through how that works yeah of course so yeah you could be um you could be claiming anything, whether it's on LinkedIn or in a CV. And so you go for a job, you claim you've got an economics degree from, uh, I'll use Harvard, I don't even know if they teach economics, but we'll use that as an example. Today, if I then want to verify that as an employer, I would need to then go to the university and probably spend a few days because it'll take them a while to, you know, who, which department to speak to. Once I find out, like, are they going to give me the information that I need? And typically that process takes about three days. Mm-hmm. It can cost up to kind of a hundred dollars to go through that process. But now if that same credential existed as a verifiable credential, what that means is um, then the employer in this case would make a request to the holder. That would be the person applying for a job. And they would ask them for that degree certificate in kind of digital form. And they'd literally send um, this request to them um, digitally. Um, and, and that would be received potentially as, as Doc would have it in their wallet. They would decide as a wallet holder, you would decide, um, do I want to share this degree? Do I know who this um, company is? And do I want to share this credential with them? I can then select yes and then send that to them. And that sends them what we call a verifiable presentation, Matt. And so that presentation is basically a credential that has been signed by the university, um, Harvard in this case. It's also been signed by um, the the holder of the credential and they're sending that in direct response to the request for that credential. So when you have all these digital signatures and a direct response to that request all in place, 
you can be very, very sure um, like the, the authenticity and the legitimacy of that document. And so really what, what this all hinges upon is if Harvard University have said that Joe Bloggs has a degree in economics, it all hinges on how much do I trust that institution? If yeah. Harvard's got an amazing reputation, so the likelihood is, yes, I do trust that institution, that then everything else can be trusted. And so that can be verified instantly, uh, that credential. Again, literally, you can drop it into one of our applications and it'll literally verify it for you right in front of your face and, and you yeah. can trust that, that document at that point. So days of time saved. Um, are, you get, are you getting institutions like Harvard and, and other respected um, you know, uh, places to, to come on board with this? Personally, Doc is not. Um, we we have like blockchain at Berkeley was was um, an institution that we spoke to. What we have found, and our, our experience, I think I've I've heard others uh, in the space, other kind of CEOs and, and founders have um, that have kind of talked to the bricks and mortar universities are very slow. Um, they are quite risk averse um, to new technology, um, obviously at different levels, and um, but. Um, they, they tend to be quite slow moving, and um, and so so we've not found a great uptick. But I think the potential is massive for that market in the longer term. Uh, but what we found is is smaller independent um, education and also training uh, companies have been much more. So what we've really found is a little pocket of um, uh, uh, companies that do things like, uh, and you wouldn't even think these exist, but. Imagine the guy that goes up the telephone mast, like these big telecoms towers on all these ropes and has yeah. to like, you know, go and fix these towers. They're all like on YouTube and stuff. If you've ever got time to look at them, they're pretty scary. But the people that- Sounds like a good YouTube rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it looks terrifying to me, but like these people are all trained um, with, with um, these to work at height. And so we've, we've found that these companies, and, and obviously- if you were claiming to have that skill and then didn't have it, imagine the consequences, right? So not only could you die, but also there's a liability for the company. Um, so yeah. there's quite a big market for companies that train uh, these individuals to work at height or work in confined spaces or work on like construction sites and, and kind of high skilled jobs. And so they need to train uh, people, but they also need to certify them and they need to be able to prove when they come onto sites that they actually have this training that they're compliant, that they know what they're doing, and as an organization, that you're not going to get sued for for allowing someone to come on a site that's not compliant. So that's another really great use case for for verifiable credentials. Yeah, so, that's interesting. Because there, yeah. there you, you might be hoping for a critical mass, right? Of like yes. all these different things uh, or different uh, organizations that need to attest to something and then Harvard or or other like maybe major hospitals and things will see, oh, there's quite a lot of people doing this already. I think it's not as risky yeah. as we thought, and and we'll jump on That's board. That's right. And even like in the US, there's a company we're working with called Burst IQ in, in Colorado, and a big focus for them is is um, training nurses and and working with uh, like large agencies that supply nurses to to hospitals. But there's a big problem in the US. Like not only are nurses leaving the the sector in their droves. But also what's happening is if they try and shift their location to work somewhere else, maybe in a different state or even a different hospital, that process can take up to six months because the other yeah. hospital has to be 100% sure to verify that, you know, that that nurse or that doctor is, is sufficiently and adequately trained to, to work with them. And so that process today is a bunch of paperwork. Um, and, and all this verification stuff that needs to go on that, that like I say, is, is all done remotely and takes many months. 
But imagine working in a world where, and this is what we're working on with this company, with Burst IQ, is where that medical professional turns up with a, a mobile phone and on it they have their digital wallet. And inside their wallet is a bunch of credentials issued by some licensing board in America that tells the hospital that they're um, they're qualified to work. And imagine that within a within a, a few minutes, they could actually start working in a different location. Um, and then you think about how powerful that could be. But then imagine that in places that really really need it, like disaster zones, mm. where like medical attention is really in short supply, and you would want people to be helping out, but they can't because they're they're not being approved to to, to help. Yeah, you. there's a backlog, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. So that's where it becomes like really, really powerful. And, and even just beyond money and making making money as a business, just in terms of like human good, that's such a powerful thing to be able to do. So um, yeah, yeah, we're huge gain in efficiency. Yeah. Um, and please tell me you're doing something on title uh, insurance on this for anyone who's bought a house. Uh, there's always a title search. Yes, which is absolutely ridiculous, and you have to pay a couple hundred dollars for somebody to look up that you nobody's making a claim on the title that you're trying to buy, and it's just like, my God, please put that shit on a blockchain, (laughs) get those people out of a job. Yeah, that and like all the land registry stuff as well. You know, like that—that's a great one in the developed world, and uh, you know, all the background check companies. There's quite a few that that we're speaking to now about that. So, like that—that definitely makes that a very strong use case. But even if you look to places that don't have a lot of um, infrastructure in place, like, you know, like, uh, you know, out in, in parts of Africa where there's large land masses that are, you know, owned by someone, but basically, you know, you can't live there anymore, refugees, and they move away from the land. And then when they move back, there's no title, there's no title deeds, nobody knows who owns what. But mm-hmm. imagine you could put that land registry stuff on a, on a blockchain as well. So like you say, that's that, that's a really great use case. Yeah. And um, speaking of blockchain, you guys are working on Substrate. Yes. Um, and I, it sounds like you made the decision not to use Ethereum because it can be slow and costly. Uh, is, yeah. is that sort of what... what and, and and Substrate is a modular blockchain, right? So that, that means it can have many different... Uh, or maybe you could explain it. Like yeah, what, of course. And, and how, that, uh, how, how that helps you guys at Doc uh, achieve yeah. what you're trying to yeah, do. I'm happy to. So we actually started on Ethereum. So we actually had, um, so we kind of, Ethereum we were working on, uh, and, and that was the basis um, for, for what we were building. Um, and then during that process, you know, NFTs in the form of CryptoKitties came along and and really started to congest the chain uh, with, with that activity. And, you know, so it became difficult in terms of how long uh, transactions would take to confirm, and also I think it was a it was a catastrophe. Yeah, <laughs> I see you've done that. <laughs> uh, you're wasted on this show. Um, but yeah, exactly. You had stuff like that, and then you had um, you know the cost being very volatile. And uh, yeah. if you're a business, you kind of need to know how quickly something is or isn't going to happen, and you need to know what the cost is going to be. And so for us, that made that risk was was too great. It's like you can't really base a business on that. And and there's been certain strides since then with regards to to making. Um, like layer twos and stuff that they make uh, those main chains a little bit more immune from that type of stuff. But at that point, we decided we needed our own bespoke blockchain for for basically just identity and just credentials. And so we picked up uh, Substrate, which is basically a framework by Parity, which is the guys behind Polkadot. 
on mm-hmm. the Web three foundation. We basically built our own chain. Uh, yeah, that's Gavin that. Wood. He was a co-founder of Ethereum. Ethereum basically, of wrote uh, basically wrote Ethereum after Vitalik kind of gave him the architecture. He yeah. took it from there. He that's right. Amazing, that's right. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant guy. Definitely. So, so then you have this this chain, and so we are we are not. I think what you're also talking about is we are basically a solo chain. So we are. We are not like so. One of the things that you can do with with Polkadot, and they have, I think, there's two. There's the Kasama network, and there's the um, I think Polkadot network as well. So you can actually have this notion of parachains as well. So you can actually be a um, you know a chain within many other chains, and then with the idea being that these multiple chains provide you greater security. But maybe you just have one set of validators confirming the transactions and producing those blocks across those chains. And so that was again a little bit before our time. Um, and so, and obviously, there were auctions and things involved in that. So, so we just basically built our own, and and that's been mm-hmm. uh, started as a, a proof of authority chain, and then within a, about I don't know three months, we started a proof of stake network, and that's been running for I would say over two years now. Okay, wow, really cool. Um, and then you you also have a token, uh, the Doc token, yes, uh, that's uh, inherent into the, the ecosystem. Um, so, which is needed to process operations on your network? Um, can you tell me a little bit about that and and how you went about it, um, and whether you know there are any lingering concerns about you know whether this is a security uh, in the you know kind of current regulatory environment or. I guess whether you're offering it in the United States, first of all. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's we would definitely see it as a utility token, um, but we're we're not big enough to to appear in anyone's. I mean, certainly, we weren't named as part of like uh, I think the SEC's recent kind of thoughts about what what uh, securities are and what they aren't. Um, and so, yeah, the US is not an area that that we focus on. Um, we're not kind of listed on any kind of US um, exchanges. Um, and so, the company itself is is now based in Switzerland, Doc Labs. Um, but for us, that's the that kind of feels a little bit like for for us, it's um, a bit of a distraction. So for us, there's a very clear utility for Doc on the network. Um, and so, I mean, that's the very definition of utility. And so. Like you said, I mean, if you want to do something on the DOC network, you must have tokens in a wallet somewhere in order to do those operations. If you want to change how the network is run, there's a decentralized governance system that really has the token in a place where anyone can raise a proposal and and basically everyone can vote on it again using these tokens. And so, um, and then it's another it's a reward mechanism as well for not only the validators for providing their resources, but also for stakers who are basically locking up tokens on the network to, to help secure it. So for us, it's very much a utility. Um, and yeah, the challenges in America are, I mean, anyone's guess as to how that's going to fall, but it looks like it's going to rage on for a while. Um, so, right. so for us, we just keep our heads down and uh, um, and know that the token has a really key aspect um, to the network and uh, um, it's essential to, to its running. And so, when you're talking about like that use case with um, a nurse or a doctor that wants to change um, locations in the United States from state to state, is that how are you working with them when the talk token? You know, you're not offering it in the United States. Is, how, how does that? It must yeah, be frustrating. Really good uh, question, or, Matt. Yeah. So yeah. we work with companies, um, and so what we would do is we built a couple of different things. But one of those, the, the key things that we we found when we started trying to commercialize Doc is. is 
tech, even technical companies, they don't want to have to do, they want to do as little as possible, which is probably quite obvious when you think about it. But so we basically sure. went and built a REST API, which is a, a, a thing that most developers would understand to how to build an application. So we provide these tools with Doc and they can go and build this, this application with it that enables um, these credentials to be issued to nurses and then provide a wallet that enables the nurses to store and manage these credentials in, in this example. Um, and so that's really, when, and we, in that process of building that API, we abstract away all the token stuff. Um, and so we basically, behind the scenes, have a, a, to a wallet for all the API customers that we keep stocked up. And all the customers understand is I'm paying a monthly subscription in fiat to, to Doc. Mm -hmm. And behind the scenes, we are managing keys, we're managing tokens for them, uh, kind of managing the volatility of the token price and all of that stuff. So really companies uh, working with us from any part of the world, they don't, in many cases, they don't even know there's a token existing on the network. They know yeah, there's you're decentralized care of that for them behind the it's scenes. All done for them. Uh, if yeah. you want to get your hands dirty with that type of stuff, mm -hmm. And we've really not found many that do or any that do. Um, that that is available to you as an option. But for the most part, um, it's it's very much kind of kept away. And then for the wallets, um, like people can just go and download a wallet from the app store. Um, and depending on the type of identity they select, again, they, they don't need to pay anything for it. It's there for them. They don't need to worry about tokens so much. So so all of that um, is, is really removed um, from them. But we still like it's still a great way to try and harness the power of decentralized technology and, and the kind of self-sovereignty it provides. Um, but yeah, people just don't want complexity in their lives and they don't want to understand what tokens are and what blockchains yeah. are. And we just keep that away from them. Right. Okay, got it. So we've been talking about like credentials and you know whether I actually attended Harvard University, which <laughs> I did not. Um, but and and those are all very interesting. Uh, and and I it, it's very clear to me how you guys are going about you know making sure that those things are verified. It, but to back to like to where we started this conversation, like identity is a much larger thing. Yeah. Is is this the road to identity? Like I want to prove that I'm Matt Lysing. On uh, in the web or on the web three, you know, like or a metaverse, like is this, um, are these attestations and, and like the, the things we've been talking about with documentation, is that identity or is there another, th another part of this that still needs to come to, um, not just prove that I went to a certain school or I have a certain, you know, um, qualification, but that I am me. Do you know what I mean? I do. Is that, I do. Is that, it's, okay. Yeah, it's a means to get there. Um, and yeah, and, and so where's the link? I guess what this boils down to, Matt, is probably where's the link between, you know, Matt, the person, and your on-chain um, identity or identities. Um, the answer to that could be, you know, and who stores that information um, as well is, is, is interesting. Because at the moment, a lot of the biometrics that are used on devices are not really a great way to identify you because all they're able to say is this was the last set of you know, retina scans or fingerprints that were able to unlock this phone. Um, so you present them the same information, you can unlock your phone, but it doesn't have any notion of who you are. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that, that's certainly something that, that, that this technology can deliver. We're talking the other day about actually being able to put biometrics inside credentials. Uh, and so imagine you actually put your biometrics inside credentials and then use those for to, to identify yourself. But you would have to have some location where 
your biometrics are stored so that the your your the credentials that exist are your um, biometrics. Can you can you store this stuff on chain with Substrate? Does it have enough um, you know capacity, or is that something yeah, that has to be off chain? Yeah, I mean credentials don't really go on chain. Is the great thing they would just live in the end user's device. So really, right. all that goes on chain in many cases, or what we'd advocate for, is who is the issuer of the credential. Um, so if it was like a government-backed entity, the issuer, the the, the public um, identity of the issuer, that would go on chain, and nothing else need go on chain. It would all go into your own device. So if you're then presenting a credential in some way, you're only giving them what is on your device. Um, you're not necessarily wanting to put any of this information on chain because, of course, most blockchains are are using cryptography, but they're not encrypted. Um, so that data is in plain text. So you definitely wouldn't want to be putting really any of these credentials on chain, um, but you certainly would want to yeah, store because, it in the device and back up. Yeah, if, if somebody could identify me with that um, particular address, then they'd know all my then they'd exactly. have access, yeah to all my documentation yeah. and whatnot. Okay. And I think what we talk about, Matt, with identity as well is is. I think sometimes people think all it is is like a, a driver's license, a passport, and and that really comprises your identity. But actually, when you think about identifiers from the context of how you access websites, um, all of that stuff are, are identity of a sort as well. So like if I want to access Google, um, Google give me a kind of username and a password or an email and a password, and they're giving me an identifier that I use to access that service, which is centralized. But what we would like to move to and, and what I mean, is starting to happen, um, and we have a product that does this, is where you could actually have, um, you're the one that's creating the credential to access the site. Um, and then you're deciding that you no longer want to access that site. You take that, that with you. Um, no one's affording you access. And so that's a form of decentralized identity that I think we'll move into. So identity just to access, let's say, websites or web services. And you might have like hundreds of these, as many as, many as you might have passwords. So identity yeah, that's, is... That's, yeah. the, uh, that's the allure here with Web3, right? Is like you have different wallets for different things right. and you're going to be in control of how much information you're giving yes. someone for this activity versus another activity where... I might want to give you more of my personal information. So yeah, I, I love that part of it where it really gives people a lot more control over like, you know, how much of how much am I showing to the world here while I'm yeah. going online? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Nick, man, this has been fascinating. I love uh, I love talking about this uh, like kind of high level, uh, really interesting identity stuff. Um, so thank you so much. Um for all your your time and, and telling me your story, let uh, let everybody know how they can learn more about Doc Labs and, and how they can uh, follow you and, and get in touch if, if they wanted to. Of course, yeah. So if you go to doc.doc.io, that's our main site, and then you can basically try it. We have Matt, a no-code solution, so anyone can go there, like non-engineers, and you can just start a free trial. It doesn't cost anything at all. The name free would suggest that. And you go to certs.doc.io. And so you can go there, you can create a, a profile and you can start to issue credentials. Um, and you can also download our wallet, again, free of charge. And you can start to receive those credentials within those wallets. Um, so the main website, doc.io and certs.doc.io um, is, is probably a great place to start. And, and this technology is intended to be for everyone. It's not just for... For technical people and for geeks, uh, that's the way we'll kind of get mass adoption is, is making it you know highly usable. So those would be two good places to start. Yeah, that's great. 
um, we're, we're trying to push the same story here at Decentral, not for geeks, it's for everybody. And exactly. we're just going to bring you the stories of the people that are making this stuff like you, Nick. So thank you again so much. It was really a pleasure and I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, likewise, Matt. Thanks again for having me on and appreciate all the work you're doing for the community. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Mm-hmm.